I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Thursday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort. Today, another volatile session for AMC as the company sells more shares and warns investors they may lose everything. Then Twitter launches its new subscription service. What's included in Twitter Blue and what isn't? And later, Endeavor CEO Ari Emanuel as the company reports its first earnings since going public. John? Yeah, also this hour, thinking outside the boxes as Dropbox joins Box in feeling outside activist pressure. And later, we'll discuss Apple's return to work plan and whether 30 years ago, Apple might have been a meme stock. And Take Two gets an upgrade. Plus, we're also watching growth tech names like C3AI, Splunk, DoorDash, MongoDB, all having a rough start today with the NASDAQ underperforming the rest of the market once again in what has been a busy morning for tech. Carl? Yeah, although Dow has erased a 200-point uh, decline earlier today, John. We're going to start with AMC. As D said, another volatile session with the stock now down after an initial pop. Back to 45. The pre-market high was 77, announcing it'll sell about 11.5 million shares in an 8K, warning investors about the danger, saying, quote, be prepared to incur the risk of losing all or a substantial part of your investment. Short sellers have dropped about $5 million on this trade in just a day, although many are still in it. Nearly 18% of available shares are sold short, according to S3 Partners. Interesting, a lot of investors may be in AMC without even knowing it, as it, along with GameStop, John, uh, are the two biggest holdings in the Russell 2000. I actually loved your, on the other hand, this morning, because uh, the way they're interacting with investors in this retail constituency is double-edged. <laughs> it certainly is. I mean, people should understand that companies are talking and saying what they're saying for the company's interest, not necessarily for the investor or the, uh, the customers all the time. <laughs> but, you know, I also find what AMC uh, CEO Adam Aaron is doing so important. He's turning this stock pop into capital that the company can use to potentially transform the business. And isn't that what this is all about when it comes down to it, is that anybody who's investing in this company or trading this company at these levels has to believe that there is a chance, D, that they can do something here that's different from what they've done in the past. I would think that that would go for BlackBerry, too, you know, a tech company that's had its ups and certainly its downs. It's, it's getting put in that meme stock basket, and you wonder, can they turn the pop that they've seen into capital and, and buy something, make something else? Yeah. I mean, this, this surge is unprecedented, but the model isn't entirely unprecedented. Think about Tesla. Some might call it the OG meme stock, right? Uh, Wall Street couldn't believe the valuation that it was getting, you know, even just over a year ago, but it turned its fan base into investors, continued to raise money, expanding the business, and, you know, maybe some would argue with its valuation right now, but at least justifying a higher valuation. Um, so perhaps, I know we're going to talk about this, there is a scenario in which AMC is able to use the capital that it's raising for M&A, have more pricing power, perhaps become a monopoly. But, Carl, I know you spoke to IMAX's CEO this morning. He said they're not for sale, though I wonder 
there's always a price, isn't there? So what could AMC do with this money <laughs> to at least go some ways in justifying this valuation? Yeah. Yeah, Gelfond also making the point that he and Adam Aaron have known each other uh, for an awfully long time. Speaking of valuations on AMC, we're pleased to bring in NYU Stern School of Business Finance Professor Aswath Damodaran, uh, the Dean of Valuation, to talk about what it might actually be. Aswath, welcome back. Great to see you. Good to see you, too. So uh, lots of people running all kinds of numbers uh, mm -hmm. for the time when fundamentals matter again, which is obviously not right now. Um, but you're talking about... You know, depending on your forecast for, for box office, maybe $4 billion in revenue uh, would be selling at 10 times earlier in the week. What, what is a fair price? Now, I think that uh, at the moment there is a feedback loop from the price going up. And AMC, I think, is playing this game a lot better than GameStop is. I think they're taking advantage of what might be an opportunistic moment of raising capital. Because they're in a business that's in transition. I mean, you look at uh, Amazon buying a, you know, uh, uh, MGM for $9 billion. You see AT&T exiting the business. Clearly, the business is ripe for change. And AMC owns a niche of this business that's less critical than it used to be, but still a critical cog in the wheel. So I think that at the moment, you know, there's clearly no way you can get to a $33 billion market cap with the old business model that AMC had. But from my perspective, at least they're doing the right thing in raising capital and getting themselves ready for the transition that's ahead. Do you think that they can effectively gather enough a capital in this crazy window and then deploy it in ways that, I guess, what, uh, brings, brings revenue back to pre-COVID levels and then some? Or does the whole, does the whole model need to be reinvented kind of the way GameStop has signaled it has to? I think even before COVID, AMC was on its pathway to a subscription model, where essentially it was trying to get people to buy into a monthly subscription model. I think you're going to see more movement in that direction. And I think this has made AMC clearly the strongest player in the theater business, because you look at their competition, they don't have the access to capital that AMC has right now. So I think this is the first step in a process. I'd love to see the company fill in the details as to where they want to go with this money, because that's what we don't know right now. So I wonder what then you would tell retail investors that maybe getting in at ever higher levels. Can this kind of valuation be sustained by meme status and hype alone? You know what? The first thing that happens is value transfer. When you buy the stock at 45 and other people have bought the stock at 10, you're transferring value to the old stockholders. You might be okay with it. But when you buy the company at a $30 billion market cap, you've already built in the expectation that magical things are going to happen. And if they don't, you're going to be disappointed. So I think the people who win clearly are the people who gotten at five or $10 billion market caps, not the $30 billion, because at $30 billion, you're asking for the moon and hoping it get, gets delivered. Uh, Oswald, what also occurs to me is that part of what's happening here is the fans of the stock who are driving it higher uh, in, in a sense, they want to see the company turn that into capital that it can use to transform the business. But as the company do, does that, they end up diluting, right, the, the shareholders yeah. who are at that level. So in a sense, you're making this bet on the company and the company sort of at least technically, at least in the near term, is going to hurt you, right? You have to understand that if you believe in this company, it's going to be a long haul. Those are the healthy fans. There are fans out there whose primary motive seems to be to hurt the hedge funds. And investing with the intent of hurting somebody else has never worked out well in the past. 
So the, the, those investors who really want AMC to turn the corner have to recognize that this is now a loaded bet. And that's why it's so tricky. Raising capital when the price is high without destroying the momentum in the process is a really tough thing to do. And you saw that already this morning when the company announced it's going to raise more capital, you saw the stock price take a hit. So the company's got to be very careful in how it threads the needle or it can bring the whole process down to a halt. So give us a sense what else pressure-wise outside of what the company is doing is going to affect the valuation here. Should uh, investors be thinking about the 10-year? Should they be thinking uh, about interest rates in general or, you know, the, the movement of other stocks as affecting what kind of a valuation AMC is going to get over the next couple of years? I, I think the, the, the most immediate thing they should be watching is what happens in the entertainment business, because I think you're seeing a consolidation and a shifting there that we haven't seen before. Because AMC is going to benefit from that restructuring if it can get in the right place at the right time. I mean, clearly macro variables affect all of us, interest rates, inflation, to the extent that the overall market gets into a tailspin, then AMC is going to be affected. So clearly AMC needs some space and time for this plan to work out. And you probably, you know, if you're in AMC management, you're probably praying and hoping that the market stays afloat over the summer because you need time as your ally. While speaking to uh, your ape investors, uh, Aswath, you said that AMC is doing a better job than GME with its meme status by raising capital. Uh, I wonder, do you think that other companies and other industries could use a similar formula? What perhaps could be ripe for this kind of strategy? We live in a world where SPACs can raise money without an endgame. So, you know, why is it that if you're an established company, you're not going to be able to take advantage of the process? So I think that more and more companies, especially ones where they look at their price and say, my God, never expected to trade at this price, are probably looking at what AMC is doing and saying, maybe we should do it too, which is going to create some consequences. There's a real risk in this process where companies raise capital for things they haven't thought about yet because... Now, that's, you know, we've had governance issues come out of this, and you saw this in the late 90s that you have to worry about. But I think you're going to see other companies raise capital, you know, when they feel the price is right. And, and we need some governance mechanisms in place to make sure that that capital doesn't get wasted in bad investments, bad acquisitions, because management, a lot of cash is going to be tempted to do stupid things. Mm. Yeah, finally, Professor, we were interviewing the CEO of IMAX this morning about the valuation. And I think he was trying to be a little bit polite, but he basically suggested, look, I don't I don't understand the valuation, but I understand I'm having an open mind that maybe models are changing over time. Mm. And I wonder whether or not you think the, the things we've lived by for decades, revenue multiples, earnings multiples, enterprise value, uh, equity value, are, are they are they? eroding on the margin in terms of relevance, or, or is this just a silly season? I know people are not going to take this uh, kindly, but I, I think old-time value investing was lazy and sloppy. I mean, you look at a P-E ratio, invest based on that, expect to get rewarded. I think those days are done. I think you still need to think about value, but you need to think about it creatively. It can't be just the, what did you make last year? What's the existing business model? You need to be open to the fact that business models are shifting, that there are companies that might not look good on a traditional value metric now, but are still good value investments. So I think if nothing else, it's a message to all of us that we can't just depend on the old metrics and get away with it because the world is shifting under us.
must be a fascinating time in your classroom uh, and the students who are having to absorb all of this, in addition to the, the legacy stuff we all learned. Uh, Professor, thanks so much. Great to see you again. Uh, so to Thank you. Wow. Yep. Things are changing. Before the break, let's get a reality check on Apple. CEO Tim Cook sending a company-wide email Wednesday asking employees to return to the office in early September. The majority are going to come in Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays with the option of working remotely Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, Cook also said all Apple employees will have the option of working remotely up to two weeks a year. You might remember Google said a fifth of its workforce could work from home permanently. Guys, with, <laughs> with Apple having just pretty recently built this massive new campus in Cupertino, Google planning billions on a campus in San Jose, you couldn't have thought that, you know, people are just going to be working from home willy-nilly. And something tells me the iPhone team, they're not going to be working from home two days a week. <laughs> I think that's right, John. You also have uh, add Dropbox to that list as well. But an example of a company that has sort of undone plans. They planned this fancy new headquarters right in downtown San Francisco and ended up leasing it out. And we hear this from a lot of the tech CEOs we talked to, Carl, that if you don't allow some level of flexibility, you're going to lose out and you're going to have to eventually backtrack, which is something that we saw a little bit from Google. Yeah, I mean, I would point out, and John, I'm sure, would agree that uh, Apple's been pretty uh, prescient in at least their retail stores. They closed them early in the pandemic, and then they reopened when things looked pretty good. I love, D some of the stories about employers who were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you could take a couple days off during the week, but it can't be a Monday and it can't be a Friday, which sort of <laughs> destroys that whole arbitrage of trying to build long weekends all the time. Yeah, which means you can't go, you know, move somewhere else, right? They're trying to keep you close. Uh, anyways, <laughs> guys, we still have a big show coming up. There's Twitter Blue, Ari Emanuel, and Thinking Outside the Boxes. A big hour of Tech Check is just getting started. Get a gut shake on take two. Jefferies goes to buy this morning, sees more than 30% upside. They do expect a wave of new video game content to boost growth. Uh, take two forecasting 23 immersive core titles to be released in the next few years. And that is holding above uh, the 50 day this morning, guys. Carl, take a look at Endeavor Group delivering slim first quarter profit thanks in large part to momentum in UFC and other sports properties. The company went public back in April at $24 a share. It is now just shy of 30 bucks a share. Joining us to discuss the quarter and the road ahead, Endeavor CEO Ari Emanuel. Ari, good morning to you. And you're moving. Are you are you on a treadmill? I can walk and talk. The only thing I'm not doing is chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> did my did uh, your board member, Elon Musk, tell, tell you to do this, put you up to this, be more creative as a CEO? No, no, no. I, I, I have a treadmill desk. I walk every morning on the desk, so I thought I would do it with you. 
why not exercise and be on CNBC? Um, okay, let's start. Let's talk about the quarter. And I want to start with the broader media landscape where we have seen major consolidation during your first quarter as a public market CEO. How can that kind of consolidation, the big getting bigger, be good for a company like Endeavor that makes right. its money through talent and streaming and broadcast rights? Well, listen, you know, Warner, Discovery, Amazon, MGM, in our opinion, it's just further proof that content in all forms, <clears throat> TV, movies, live sports, is in high demand and in short supply. You know, the tech uh, leaders, the incumbent media companies uh, have uh, to power their SVODs and AVODs, and also they have to defend their linear channels. Um, there's going to be more demand, um, and there's a finite number of people that create IP um, and we sit in a place where we represent people, we create IP, we represent sports, we own sports. It puts us in a great position for growth. Right, but it doesn't change the fact that you are still seeing fewer and bigger players doing more content. So how does that, along with trends that we're seeing, like shorter theatrical windows, how does that not shift the bargaining power out of your favor and into theirs? You have, you have seven big players in the media space, plus the linear players having to fend, plus build SVODs. And content is more important than ever. And there's a finite number of people that create content, <clears throat> all of them vying for, for premium content. Prices are going up across the board. Um, the window issue is a different conversation. We haven't hit the bottom yet of um, what the windowing situation is. If you saw this past weekend, Disney did day and date with their SVOD service and theatrical. Paramount went just directly to it. We'll figure out what the bottom is on that with regard to the windowing. Um, but the economics for talent is going up as all these guys bid for premium content to drive eyeballs to their services. So, Ari, do you think that we'll continue to see more consolidation? Would that continue to be good for your business? Or is there a point I, at which you would lose some of that bargaining power? I don't think we're going to lose some of the bargaining power. We're, we're the biggest player in the space, whether it be content, movies, television, um, podcasts, sports rights. We own or represent on both sides of the transaction. Um, I don't think we're going to lose any power. I think we're actually just gaining power from the origins of this company. Distribution was going to be expanding. It still is expanding, even with this little consolidation in the SVOD services. When I started the business, it was four networks and a couple dozen cable channels. It's only expanded. It's going to continue to, to expand. That means, and there's a finite number of people that create content and, and IP rights. So I only think that those prices are going to be going up uh, for the content creators and the IP owners. We will see. Um, I do want to talk about UFC because it strikes me that Endeavor has this young, active, enthusiastic fan base in the UFC. I wonder how closely are you watching what Adam Aaron is doing over at AMC? Have you thought to yourself, what if you could turn UFC fans into investors? What that would do for not just the stock price, which I know is shorter term, but the business long term, if you could raise capital on the back of it? Well, listen, here's what I would say. We've had long-term investors throughout our, our, our business, whether it be Silver Lake, Mubadala, CPP, Dell, et cetera. Uh, we're a long-term player. If you think media and the growth in media is a long-term bet, um, which we do, we think we're well-positioned. Uh, whether they're short-term investors, 
if if there's fans of the UFC that want to be investors and be a long-term player, great. If they want to be a short-term, I'm not going to comment on that. We we are here for the long term. We think the media space is a great bet for growth, and we think we're in every growth sector in the media space. And the UFC for sure is a growth great growth company in business. Right, and Ari, as I mentioned at the top, you do have Elon Musk on your board, and he was sort of the pioneer of the meme stock phenomenon. Has really used that to Tesla's advantage. Are you talking to him? about perhaps capitalizing on the retail investor. And as you said, if you can turn them into longer term investors. I, I haven't discussed that with Elon at all, no. Okay, well, Ari, we will see how it shakes out. Uh, congratulations on your first quarter as a public market CEO. Uh, we hope to Thank talk you. to you again soon. Ari Emanuel, Endeavor. walking with you next time in the morning. From the treadmill. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. I'm impressed. I think that's a first, guys. Uh, we do have some breaking news on taxes and infrastructure uh, that has helped turn the market around in the last few minutes. Elon Moy's got more. Hi, Elon. Hi, Carl. The Washington Post is reporting that President Biden is proposing a minimum corporate tax of 15 percent as a potential way to pay for a bipartisan infrastructure proposal. Now, the Washington Post says that this is part of those evolving negotiations between the president and Republicans in the Senate over whether or not they can reach a roughly $1 trillion infrastructure deal and the ways to raise revenue to pay for that. Republicans have said that increasing the corporate rate to 28% is a red line, so perhaps creating a floor for what corporations would have to pay could be a way around that uh, hard line that they've drawn in the sand. Now, I have reached out to the White House and to lawmakers on Capitol Hill to try to get some more detail around this, but I will point out that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and the Biden administration more broadly has already called for establishing a 15 percent global minimum corporate tax rate. In fact, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen will be discussing this very issue with her G7 counterparts uh, in the UK over the weekend. They are expected to come out in favor of this kind of agreement. So we will see um, how this all plays into the domestic negotiations as well. But again, the White House reporting, uh, sorry, Washington Post reporting that the White House is considering creating a 15 percent minimum corporate tax rate. Back over to you guys. Yeah, Elon, and I think Reuters is matching that headline as well, quoting a source. I guess I got two questions. One is, uh, we'll obviously be looking to G7 finance ministers this weekend to see whether this can migrate to the broader G7. But also, you know, last few days, the Transportation Secretary and the Energy Secretary have talked about sort of fishing or cutting bait. I wonder if this might extend that timeline for discussion before the conversation turns truly partisan. Yeah, I, I we'll have to see, Carl, what this actually means. My assumption is that if this is part of those broader G7 negotiations, it is going to take a long time um, for those to play out. The expectation is that a final agreement may not be reached until sometime in July between OECD countries. Then Congress and the governments and legislatures of all the other countries would have to implement it as well. And there is pushback amongst Republicans on Capitol Hill as well around this idea of a minimum corporate tax rate. Uh, Senator uh, Toomey, uh, who is part of that negotiating group on infrastructure, has already come out against the idea of a minimum rate, has said it's not binding, um, that is likely to fail, not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well. So it's unclear if this is really a viable path forward and whether or not it'll extend that deadline. Yeah, 
nice little wrinkle here, though, and it does uh, raise some eyebrows ahead of maybe another counter tomorrow. We will have to wait and, and find out. Elon, thank you. That's our Elon Moy in Washington on this news that really did help the Dow go green after a 200-plus point loss at the open. Twitter's the other big story. How much would you pay for an undo button? We've got the latest on the new subscription service next. Plus, Redfin gets an upgrade today. Stevens goes bullish on the company's digital end-to-end -end value chain. You can read that call on CNBC.com slash pro. Tech Check's back after a quick break. Resetting at the bottom of the hour. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston, who's going to bring us up to speed on Twitter Blue in a couple of moments and whether this is the revenue stream that Twitter investors have, in fact, been waiting for. Uh, S&P right at 4,200. Let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. U.S. companies adding nearly a million jobs in May, led by the leisure and hospitality industries. Jobless claims falling for the fifth week in a row and hitting another pandemic low of 385,000. General Motors is ramping up production of pickups to meet rising demand. The company also expects results for the second half of the year to be, quote, significantly better than earlier forecasts. Ford says that SUV sales in May were the best in 18 years. Overall, May sales are up more than 4%. The company also announcing a new compact pickup called the Maverick. More details on that will be released next week. And the world's largest meat processing company says that it's resuming production after being hit by a cyber attack. JBS saying that all of its plants are expected to be running near full capacity today. Meanwhile, New York's mass transit system, the MTA, saying that its computers were indeed breached by hackers, but that no sensitive data was stolen and operations were not disrupted. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thanks. Twitter, meanwhile, recently unveiling a premium subscription service called Twitter Blue. Let's get to Julia Borston to break it down. Julia, we keep calling this an undo button, but it's not really, right? It's like a 30-second hold button, like a are you sure button. Uh, it doesn't publish the tweet. It gives you another chance to look at it after you, after you press tweet. Yes, but look, the, the undo button is something that Twitter users have been asking for for a long time. And this feature in Twitter Blue is a piece of that. There are a couple different things here in addition to that sort of undo button. There's a reader mode to make it easier to follow long threads on Twitter. Sometimes I find that a little bit challenging. There are also folders. You could organize saved tweets. And then they say there are going to be all sorts of other perks. If you care about the background themes um, you're using in your app, they're going to give you all sorts of features there. But I think the big question, John, is how many people will be willing to pay for it? It is rolling out starting today in Australia and Canada for roughly three U.S. dollars a month. So we'll see how big the audience is for that. And also, we don't know yet when it'll launch here in the U.S. Yeah, it seems to me, Julia, like for companies, this is almost like insurance. Like if you somebody tweets that uh, awkward wording or that misspelling by accident, of course, you know, it's worth a couple bucks a month to be able to pull that back. But have you seen any expectations, perhaps from analysts, on what percentage of the user base needs to adopt this for it to be good for Twitter? Because I imagine, yeah, I mean, uh, subscription revenue is gravy, but if hardly anybody takes the bait on this, that's going to look bad. Well, look, I think I haven't seen any analyst response yet. We've been checking and hopefully we'll get some analysis 
um, from some analysts soon. I think that this is a pretty niche service. This is really designed for power users. And I think um, one thing that's going to be interesting is as they continue to add new features, maybe it becomes more valuable or maybe they introduce it at a lower price point here in the U.S. But I think the key thing here, John, is that this is not going to be the only subscription service. Twitter has talked in the past about wanting to do more commerce. That's another potential revenue stream. But if they have the subscription capability built in, then they could charge for other things like more premium content, additional content or access um, from some big tw Twitter creators, or even as they have things like Sp Twitter Spaces, their version of Clubhouse, being able to ticket that and have people pay to get into that. So I would say that this idea of getting people comfortable with the idea of paying for something for Twitter might have more implications down the line than just getting them to pay for this one specific thing. Good point. And speaking of commerce, Facebook's F8 developer conference going on. And one of the things from yesterday that caught my eye is the messenger API for Instagram now being broadly available. It seems to me that this allows companies, shops, sellers to really tie that communication through Instagram with the user base into the experience. Will this also help with attribution, make it easier for Facebook, for Instagram to make the case you made that sale because of our advertising and therefore, hey, pay us more? Well, look, that's a good reason that Facebook really wants to have commerce happen on its platform. It's not because it's going to necessarily mean getting a big cut of revenue from each transaction. That's not it at all. What's much more important is the advertising that can be driven from this idea that if you advertise, you can get someone to transact right away within Facebook or Instagram. And now this idea of really investing in the messaging capabilities. So up until now, Facebook has allowed businesses to really work on messaging with their, their consumers on both WhatsApp and Messenger. Now they're expanding that very broadly to Instagram with the idea that they want people to be conducting business. They want customer service all happening within their platforms. And now Instagram is going to be a big piece of that. And I think, John, that's not only about selling things, but also about driving that ad revenue, of course. Right. And Julia, as we talk about, you know, greater scrutiny for these social media platforms and how they might diversify outside of ad revenue, it is interesting that Twitter is looking to gain more from subscription based. Do you think that this could be viewed positively by regulators and lawmakers that we could see Facebook follow suit or them, you know, target this kind of revenue in a bigger way? Well, look, it, I think it's a good thing for, for Twitter from an investor standpoint to see them diversify their revenue streams. And it seems like over the past year, as Twitter has talked more about generating revenue from different areas, that investors have reacted positively to that. But I think Facebook does have some of these other revenue streams, and they have been experimenting with them, such as Facebook Workplace. This is the sort of LinkedIn Slack type tool that's for workers that that enterprises pay for. It's an enterprise software tool, effectively. So, you know, Facebook has been working to to move into different areas, but I don't know if that's as much about regulators as just trying to take advantage of the opportunities um, that come from its various areas of software strength. Right, that makes sense. Wonder though, if regulation and sort of that sort of softer PR could be a bonus there. Uh, Julia, thanks for bringing us all of that. Well, look. Uh, yeah, D, Up D next. I was just going to say, ahead, I Julia, think I'm that, sorry. You know, Go it's, it, 
Oh, no, it, it, I was just going to say, Dee, that I actually think that it could be a challenge if you see some of these companies like Facebook using their strength in one area and then trying to push into other areas. That's something that has drawn antitrust scrutiny. Um, I think that the, the reality is, is that Facebook's not going to give up any of its dominance of the ad market as part of the digital duopoly with Google just because it's doing some of these other things. Um, so I do think that, and in fact, it could be something that regulators are watching. <laughs> That's a great point. There are just so many issues on so many sides that it's careful where they they got to be careful where they shift to. Um, Julia, thank you so much for breaking that down. Up next, when growth stocks don't grow as much as investors would like, why both Dropbox and Box are in the hot seat. Plus, what to expect from the Netflix shareholder meeting tonight. A lot more tech checks still ahead. Stay with us. Dropbox and Box were once billed as the hottest opportunities in tech. Perhaps you remember these magazine covers. Take a look. That is Drew Houston and Aaron Levy on the front of them. Uh, but now, guys, we are some ways from that. Activists are circling as both companies underperform other cloud high-growth names over the pandemic. Elliott Management taking a 10% stake in Dropbox, making it the biggest shareholder after co-founder and CEO Drew Houston. Meanwhile, Box is sparring with Starboard in a two-year-long battle as the activist investor makes its latest push in a bid for board seats. And John and Carl, we have talked about this. These stocks are lagging. They're peers in the space. We just saw Cloudera go the other way, go private. Uh, but, but I'll do an on the other hand, John, on the other hand, take a look at a company like Square, which sort of muddled along for a while after its IPO. And over the last year or two has really shot up and I like how we have the graphic guys um, and really proved some of those earlier naysayers wrong. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think when you think about Square today and why people are investing in it, you're not thinking of that little dongle that pushes into phones. And I, I think part of the question is, how do these companies evolve and get beyond what the initial idea was? And certainly both Dropbox and Box have tried to push into enterprise and go beyond just that freemium, hey, we've got some storage for you in the cloud model. But I think the, the argument, at least that these activists are making, is that they haven't been aggressive enough about that. Now, I would also, Carl, put in this category of you know, transformation what we see FireEye doing, right? Uh, FireEye is spinning out, selling off FireEye to private equity going to rename itself Mandiant, uh, cast itself as a software as a service uh, company with $237 million in annual recurring revenue from here. You know, today, investors not loving that. It's down 15%. But we just had Kevin Mandia on last week, and we're asking him about do investors really know how to value these security companies uh, and, and give them, you know, the benefit of maybe software or, or growth possibilities Maybe this is the way he's trying to do that, Carl. Yeah, I, you know, John, I'm sort of reminded of what uh, John Chambers said a few years ago about the eventual uh, shakeout that would come to enterprise software in particular. Uh, and that's maybe where we are in sort of this mid-cycle, uh, past the era of hyper-growth, looking for inefficiencies. That's clearly where activists come in and look for improvements as some lag. Um, I want to do it on the other hand, just so we can roll that graphic. I guess we've co-opted your <laughs> franchise, John. 
Well, you know, we can, we, we can share with Squawk Box. We can. You know, there's, there's enough to go around uh, and certainly enough arguments, uh, enough different sides of these stories to examine them all as we will continue to do. And, you know, I would point out with all these stories, the mega scale cloud players are really putting pressure on the so-called best of breed. You know, both Dropbox and Box said, hey, we'll be fine. We, we can make it. Take a look at their stock. It, it, it has been a rough go so far. All right. DocuSign, Asana, PagerDuty all reporting tonight. All three are going to join us tomorrow here on Tech Check. Meanwhile, watch Bitcoin, another volatile session. This time to the upside, Elon's rep taking a little bit of a hit because of recent Bitcoin comments, which you can find online. You can see Bitcoin there, still below 40,000 though, but uh, in the green for today. Tech Check back in two. Guys, as we see AMC dominating market headlines today, I want to take a look at a company that would have been a meme stock 20 years ago, Apple. Now, in September 2000, Apple stock fell off a cliff after a poor earnings report. Around that same time, short interest as a percentage of Apple's available shares hit an all-time high. Apple looked like a depressed company to naysayers. A lot of people thought the iMac and iBook launches had run their course. The G4 Cube computer was flopping. And as we've mentioned here before, Apple decided to launch 25 retail stores in the midst of the dot-com crush. Now, of course, the public, not everybody, could see Steve Jobs' vision just yet. The iPod, iTunes Store, iPhone, still just a dream. So 20 years ago, you'd have had to be a fanatic to believe Apple could be bigger than Dell, let alone growing more than 33,000% into one of the most valuable companies on the planet. I mean... Apple didn't spike in a meme stock frenzy, Carl, but if it had, people would have said, oh, that's nuts. The company will never be worth that much. Question is, does Adam Aaron have Steve Jobs' size vision? We'll see. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess my immediate response, John, would be Apple uh, built its, its uh, behemoth self on the back of wireless services and the advent of GPS and certainly social media. Uh, I guess what is the equivalent that the movie theater business could, uh, could build a foundation upon, D? Perhaps I would argue Tesla could be a better comparison. A lot of those bulls comparing Elon Musk to Steve Jobs. And there can only be one or at least a few. But what Tesla is doing beyond EVs and batteries and energy storage and autonomous vehicles and software, guys. Um, but it's an interesting <laughs> comparison. And I go back to that 1984 commercial, uh, how that sort of went viral at the time as much as you could during that period. And now how it's being co-opted, Carl, by uh, Apple's enemy, Fortnite, Epic Games, using it to sort of throw it back in Apple's face. So will it continue to come out on top? Yeah, uh, that's, for, that's a question that remains unanswered. Um, NVIDIA is holding its annual shareholder meeting today. That's going to happen at 2 o'clock Eastern time. We're going to watch for some headlines out of that. Splunk's in the red after reporting a greater-than-expected loss in Q1. And we do have some big names after the bell, like DocU and Lulu. Tech Check is back in a moment. Some heads are still shaking after AMC went 2x yesterday. Some call it a short squeeze, but our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, at the NYC today says it might be a little more complicated than that, Mike. 
Yeah, Carl, or at least it's bigger than that. It's certainly not only a short squeeze because that could not come close to explaining really the trajectory and the amount of activity in uh, AMC shares. You look at a, a year-to-date charter uh, right here. Uh, obviously, we thought this was sort of extreme back in January, February when it was trailing along uh, with the GameStop mania. Uh, and right now, it's obviously created an even huger spike on this chart. And part of the narrative around it is that it is a short squeeze. Now, let's have the facts. At last report, there were about 95 million shares of AMC sold short. That could have changed since the, the official report. Maybe there's been some net covering. Maybe there hasn't. 95 million shares, a little bit less than 20 percent of all shares outstanding. Over the last two days, so yesterday and so far today, a billion shares have turned over in this stock. Uh, obviously, a lot of that is just kind of systematic trading machines, pinballing it back and forth. It's not necessarily all covered. But the point being, there's more than ample opportunity for anybody short this stock to have covered. And if it was not a squeeze up till now, and if that short position still remains out there, it shows you that that wasn't a necessary factor in it, except to the degree that it motivates those people who are still piling and still want to chase it and still want to have a storyline to grab onto that is something more than, hey, people might go to movies this summer, guys. So, Mike, if it's not a short squeeze, is there a term for it? Is it a feeding frenzy? Like, if it's not motivated <laughs> by people trying to avoid pain, is it people trying to sate their hunger? I think so, John. I mean, I've been calling it a stampede. I mean, it's kind of loosely coordinated. And then once the momentum is triggered and once you actually have the follow-on buying and people willing to pay up massive premiums to face value for options on this stock that expire tomorrow at $70, um, that's what's been going on for the last couple of days. It does have a short-term self-fulfilling effect. Uh, at some point, it gets spent. At some point, the, the rally itself becomes unstable at these angles. It doesn't mean it's over. It just means that basically there's a collective belief and it'll, it'll run until it, 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 it runs out of fuel as opposed to until people who are there to be victimized uh, on the short side uh, have kind of surrendered. I don't know if some of that's been going at it probably has it has somewhat been hard to borrow so presumably people are trying to reshort it up at these levels but I, I do think you have to get away from the idea that that's all that's going on not just with AMC but with a lot of these other news Blackberry for example not a particularly heavily shorted stock uh, you could still borrow some of these shares so it seems as if you have to uh, just sort of look and point and stare and and you know in wonder at the momentum but not really assume that somebody is uh, is explicitly being cornered here uh, on the short side. Right, Mike, that's good perspective. Uh, a lot more to this story. Thank you. Um, and as we had to break, Mike mentioned the volume. Take a look at the most active trades on the New York Stock Exchange. No surprise, BlackBerry and AMC seeing huge trading volumes. By the way, AMC has been as high as $62 today and as low as $37. You also see Ford and Nokia up there as well. Uh, Tech Check will be right back. Two tech executives taking in record pay packages last year, both Palantir and DoorDash awarding their CEOs special stock awards worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Palantir's Alex Karp raked in a whopping $1.1 billion. That is more than any other CEO last year. Meanwhile, DoorDash awarded CEO Tony Hsu with restricted shares that were initially valued at $400 million. According to Equilar, Tony Hsu made $415 million in 2020. Keep in mind, of course, guys, neither of these companies are 
profitable yet, but that has not stopped investors from pushing shares well above their listing prices. Guys? And uh, one more thing, uh, that is Chamath Palahapitiya's spate of SPACs. He is filing for four new ones, each to focus on a unique area in biotech. Palahapitiya still trying to merge two of his original six SPACs. He's already completed mergers for SoFi, Clover, Open Door, and Virgin Galactic. All of this goes to show, Carl, there's money out there if you can get it. Yep, uh, we'll see. It would be fascinating, D, if we got a bounce in SPAC volume the way Virgin Galactic shares have bounced uh, from 17 up to 33. Yeah, and you know, there's money out there, but are there enough companies, right? And I wonder, too, how uh, Chamath Palhapatia is going to raise money if he'll have to sell out of any of his existing holdings, Carl, which has been a touchy subject. Yeah, uh, we look forward to maybe hearing from Chamath directly in the coming days. It's going to be an eventful uh, 24 hours in the market. Not only do we have DocuSign and Lulu tonight, but tomorrow, uh, PagerDuty, Asana, and DocuSign are all going to join us, talk about earnings in addition to the jobs number tomorrow, which, of course, has big macro implications. We'll see you then. In the You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.